Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our second episode of Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm glad that you're here. I'm, I'm Bob Weathers. Uh, let me say a word about myself and where we're headed today. Actually, I'll also touch on where we were last week. My background is in psychology. I have a PhD in clinical psychology. And I've worked in the last 10 years uh, as a recovery coach focusing on addiction recovery. And as I mentioned last, uh, last uh, week, I am myself in recovery. So it's a first-hand experience that I have in addition to my clinical experience. And I'm hoping to pass along to you some nuggets that will be useful if you're uh, an active addict looking for information, if you're uh, an individual in recovery from addiction, I'm hoping to support you in that uh, along with myself. If you're the loved one of, a, of either an active addict or uh, an individual who's recovering, I hope this is a support to you. And then finally, if you're a treatment professional, um, whether you're a clinical recovery worker or a non-clinical, it doesn't really matter. I hope that this information reaches as wide an audience as possible. One of my goals is to translate what I've learned from uh, clinical psychology and studies in addiction into English, and I really want to make them useful. So in that spirit, I really want to invite you to interact with me. The format is this. Today I'll be uh, diving in and presenting a bit of content. It'll be a little bit more interactive than last uh, last meeting. In our last meeting, I discussed addiction in the brain, and a lot of it was were uh, my bringing concepts to you that I felt like were kind of foundational to uh, where we go next. Uh, today, I'll have some exercises. If I can uh, ask you to do this now, uh, if you can get a piece of paper or maybe a couple of pieces of paper and have them uh, handy with a pen or pencil, that would be great. If, you're, uh, if it's easier for you to write in a notepad on your computer, you can do that as well, okay? But you'll, I'll be asking you to do some um, uh, quick reflections as we move through the material today. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the kind of overarching topic of my presentation here, as well as my work locally uh, at Beginnings Treatment Center is what I call plural recovery. And the concept of, is simple, is that there's a lot of focus in recovery on the individual's responsibility. And that's as it should be. There's a lot that needs to be done in terms of what psychology calls self-regulation. In fact, we'll be talking more about that today. Uh, but there's also uh, an equal importance, I believe, to be given to what psychology calls co-regulation, which is the, the impact of loved ones and skilled helpers on, uh, on uh, setting the groundwork for successful and sustained recovery. And so my thought here is that, that we help ourselves uh, by helping each other. And uh, that's, that, that's kind of the overarching guiding principle of, of any conversation I have. Next slide. One of the things that happens in addiction, and I talked about this last week, it happens in addiction, and, and sadly it also happens in recovery, is that, uh, in fact, I just met with a group of men, as I did last uh, session, I just met with a group of men right before I came in today, and we discussed this, and it was a universal uh, experience that those in the group really acknowledged, is that shame, um, which is feeling bad about who I am as a human being, gets so tied to addiction and Sadly, also to recovery, that to admit that one is in recovery means that you were addicted. And for many individuals, there's nothing more loathsome than to be identified with being an addict. It's associated with being weak uh, or worse. And so uh, really looking at doing what we can to unshame uh, the addictive process. Um, a kissing cousin of shame is what happens in relationship. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, where our significant others 
uh, get fed up. There's so much betrayal. There's so much disappointment that goes hand in hand with, with addiction. And so anybody who's been in relationship to an active addict uh, uh, knows what it's like to feel just completely burnt out of compassion and caring. And uh, sadly, but very humanly, what will enter in oftentimes is blame uh, associated with anger, frustration, judgment. All of that makes a lot of sense, but that goes right into this shame uh, hole uh, that the addict is probably su suffering with already, uh, him or herself. And so uh, what I want to talk about, well, I discussed this last week as well, is that shame and blame translate in the brain into a response that actually paralyzes for, uh, forward momentum. And so this is not at all about uh, excuses or absenting responsibility. In fact, the next slide. I feel like that, that in order to be freed up, our best resources to be freed up, we need something to unshame us. And I, I feel very strongly about this and been committed to it, is I think providing good information because I work directly with individuals in early recovery from addiction, serious addiction, oftentimes heroin and, and methamphetamine, is that I feel like right from the get-go, if we can supply sound information as a foundation for their recovery, uh, actively battling against the knee-jerk reflex to move into shame. I think it's a good thing. I feel equally committed to presenting this information to the loved ones of, of um, addicts in recovery only because uh, they are understandably at the end of their tether. And if I can provide information that supports hope for you as a loved one, I want to do that. And then finally, we have professionals in our audience, therapists and other recovery workers in the field that I feel like if I can encourage you also uh, uh, with good information. I feel like that uh, we're right there with the loved ones in terms of being allies in the, uh, in the recovery process, uh, a plural recovery process, let's say. And so I feel like this is for you as well. My goal is to present information that is universally applicable and maximally understandable. So we'll see how I succeed with that, okay? Uh, today's topic, next slide. <coughs> today's topic is holistic treatment for addiction. And why, why holistic uh, uh, treatment is essential for successful, sustained recovery. We'll be unpacking what holistic means over the next few slides and, and then some exercises. I feel like this is going to be the scratch and sniff approach to coming to a deeper understanding of what it means to be holistic in your treatment philosophy. And I'm choosing treatment philosophy. I guess I'm coming out of my background as a recovery coach and as a clinician. Um, but I, I feel that this information is perfectly applicable to any individual who's in recovery, uh, himself or herself, uh, from addiction, as well as the loved ones. And so we're talking about an approach to recovery that uh, is embracing of multiple perspectives. But let's see what those perspectives are. In fact, I'm going to have you do this firsthand. If you have a piece of paper in front of you, I'm going to ask you to do this. Draw a, a vertical line right down through the middle of the paper from top to bottom and a horizontal line in the middle there from left to right and do the same there. If you have a fancy way of doing this on your computer, like I did to create this, to create this uh, PowerPoint image, you can do that. I'm probably not too quick with this and you might not be either. It's not essential, but I'll be referencing this, these four quadrants here as we move through this exercise. So. Four questions to start with. In the upper right-hand corner, what I want you to write, uh, take a moment to do this, and we'll give you a moment to reflect on this. I want you to write down, how do you think a medical doctor defines or describes addiction? So put yourself into the mindset of somebody whose training is in medicine, in scientific approaches to healing physical diseases. How would that individual define addiction? And you can do this in a simple phrase. 
I'm going to give you a second to do that. It'll help if you do this. <laughs> And once you've done this, I'm going to invite you to uh, to uh, to uh, write a text in the chat box. Uh, Austin, Austin is one of our co-producers here. I invite you, if you feel comfortable, to send what you wrote to Austin. We'll be coming back to this, and I would love to have input from those that are watching. I'll be supplying some more information, but your input will be taken very seriously. So once you've written down just a simple phrase, there's no right or wrong with this. I'm interested in diversity, actually. Uh, if you'll uh, text that in your chat box to Austin, he'll share some of those with me in a, in a few minutes. We'll come back to this one. So that's the upper right quadrant. How do you think a medical doctor defines addiction? Next slide. France is our other co-producer. France is helping Francois Vitera and uh, Austin uh, Armstrong are here helping me uh, uh, meet you today, okay? Uh, in the, the upper left-hand corner, what I want you to write, again, a simple uh, uh, response, is this. How do you think a therapist defines addiction? And by therapist, I'm thinking of somebody who does psychological work, counseling work, around addiction, how might they define addiction? So give yourself a moment again, just write a very simple response. We'll be coming back to all of these momentarily. And as before, if you'd be so kind as to label it when you send this to Austin, I invite you to submit uh, your definition because we'll be sharing these. So uh, just put therapist, and then give the definition as before with the doctor. We can separate them that way. All right. Next, I'd like you to go to the lower right-hand corner of that, this, this on your page, or at least in your mind's eye. How do you think a judge defines addiction? This would be a courtroom judge. How might they define addiction? And if you'll forward those responses as well as to Austin, that'll help seed the conversation. And then one more, and this is on the lower left-hand corner. How do you think an addict's loved one defines addiction? If you're an active addict or if you're an individual in recovery, you can reference your experience with your loved ones. It might very well be that you are the loved one of somebody who's in recovery or perhaps is even an active addiction. And so you'll just be responding with your experience. How do you define addiction? And if you're a therapist or other uh, a skilled helper, uh, write down what you've gathered from your work with many, many therapists work with family members and so you'll know firsthand here. How do you think an addict's loved one defines addiction? <clears throat> I invite you to forward that as well to Austin, please, to the uh, chat function. Now, if you have a physical piece of paper in front of you with, with these uh, four quadrants, I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to turn that piece of paper over for the next exercise. And if you're working at a computer, uh, you, you'll just scroll down and create an empty space. And I want you now to answer this question. <clears throat> How do you define addiction? How do you define addiction? 
I'm assuming that not all of you who are listening are doctors <laughs> or therapists or judges. If you are one of those, you'll probably define it just like you did. And certainly if you're a loved one, this would be the same answer. But if you can pull back from all that we just talked about and come up with your own personal equation for how you understand addiction, that'll be very useful to us in our conversation. Give you a minute for that. Okay, uh, what I want to do is I want to check in with Austin. Okay, if, if there aren't any responses coming in, let me dive in. I invite you as we go along, as we kind of unpack this, you're well, very welcome to share. But let me dive into this and um, I'm going to read your minds, okay? <laughs> and you can see how much this resonates. I meant what I said, there's no right answer. I certainly don't have a right answer. Um, in fact, let me mention something that just came out of the group that I led, men's group that I led right before we met today. Um, they're my guinea pigs. <laughs> they now know it because we did this, the last meeting. I, I took them through these exercises today. Uh, they were the, the uh, test run. It was the first time that I had uh, sprung this material on, on anybody. And uh, we did this together. We did exactly what, we, what we're doing right now. We did this with a, a room full of about 20 men, all of whom are in early recovery, most of whom are in recovery from severe addiction to, uh, 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 as I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, heroin uh, or methamphetamine, so very serious addictions. And we went through this exercise together. We had the room full of most of them were attentive. No one fell asleep today. They were, this material grabbed them, which is good. At the very end of this exercise, one of them, I can still picture him over to the right. He said, okay, and what's, what's the true definition, Dr. Bob? And I thought it was a great question. And uh, I'll tell you my answer to him is that it's all of these definitions, is that all the four that we did on the front page there and the one on the so-called back page, all five of these definitions are pertinent and there's overlap between them, but there's also differences between them. He actually, you know, I'll tell you what he said. He said, I was, I was thinking that you were gonna give me a Webster's Dictionary definition and, and uh, I didn't. I, I said what I said. I said, well, if Webster is up to snuff, Webster will give multiple definitions, just like what we did. I asked for them to share their definitions, and they covered all the bases very thoroughly from all, all five of these perspectives. And his last words were, he was relieved. He was relieved that I didn't resort to Webster. And uh, that's what we're doing here. We're looking at a kind of a, a from the ground up. Uh, a, a more organic definition of addiction. Let me just mention this really quickly. It's implied in what I just said about uh, this the gentleman in the group saying, uh, what's the right definition? What's the true definition a la Webster? And the fact is, is that uh, unless Webster includes this kind of range of response, uh, there's inherent limitation. And in fact, there is inherent limitation. As we flesh this out, you'll see more of this. There's inherent limitation in the perspective of a doctor only, or a therapist only, or a judge only, or a loved one only, or for that matter, ourselves only, if we ourselves uh, are in recovery. And so there's virtue and value, and this is really a, a cornerstone of looking at addiction holistically. There's virtue uh, in looking at, at addiction in multiple forms so that we cover as many bases as possible. And so what this slide says, the, the one we were just looking at there, is that any single perspective, while necessary, 
I believe a doctor's perspective, a therapist's perspective, a judge's perspective, and so on, each one of those is necessary if we're going to fill out a definition of addiction, but uh, any one of them alone is not nearly sufficient to describe addiction. So you get right there the kernel or the spirit of what it is to think holistically is that, uh, to put it more technically, we don't want to reduce down addiction to a single category and miss the full picture. And I'm going to be uh, sharing more about that so you have more of a felt sense of that. Um, I think I want to pause for just a minute here, uh, just to kind of come up for air. Let me check in with Austin. If there's any comments, feedback, or questions, this is a time that you can share those. If not, I'll proceed, but I like it's important to just kind of have a breather here for just a moment. Austin, do you have anything for me? No questions yet. Okay, all right. Uh, I want to invite you as we go along to ask questions, and we'll come back. I'm going to uh, continue forward uh, again with, with more kind of exercises, conversation with you, and as you have questions, I'll come back to those, and we'll set aside some a good chunk of time at the very tail end today, as we did last time for dialogue. I highly value that, and it uh, really is not a distraction. It's actually central to creating a robust presentation here. If you wrote this on a piece of paper, those four questions I asked you on the front, uh, let's talk about this together, and if you didn't, we can follow this. The upper right-hand corner... <coughs> looks at um, what you can observe from the outside about me, about anything. It doesn't have to be about addiction. It can be about anything. The example I gave today is that you can measure Bob Weathers in terms of height. You can weigh me. In fact, I went to the doctor for this cough earlier this morning, and that's exactly what they did. Oh, they also got my blood pressure. You can do all of that, get information from uh, an outside or observable perspective, and you don't really have to talk to me about it. You just gather it, and it's factual data. And that really, I was interesting, I was at a medical, medical doctor's office, and that's really what a doctor does. It isn't to say that doctors don't talk to us, but for the most part, they can measure. They can give me a blood test to find out what's going on. It doesn't require an interview. And so in the upper right-hand perspective, if we look at addiction from an upper right-hand perspective, it's what can you observe about addiction. And if, if you want to get a good example of that, go to last week's presentation on Ask an Addiction Specialist, where we really uh, 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 displayed in some detail what happens in the brain of, a, of an addict, an active addict, and also what may continue or persist for a while in early recovery in the brain of, of a former addict who's in recovery. And that's all factual information. As, as, you, as I mentioned then, most all of that has been gathered, that information's been gathered in the last 10 or 20 years. And did I say it was gathered by interviews? No, it wasn't. It's been gathered by brain scan technology, by functional MRIs and CAT scans and so on. And uh, uh, that's statistical uh, scientific information that can be gathered. And that's really what the upper right-hand quadrant focuses on. It's highly valuable. The entire presentation last time was on the upper right-hand quadrant, is a way to understand that. If we move across to the upper left-hand side, that quadrant, now we're moving into my private thoughts and feelings. And now you can measure how tall I am. You can measure how much I weigh. You can take my blood pressure. But can you measure my thoughts from the outside? Can you measure my feelings, or yours for that matter, from the outside? No, you really can't. You know, you can ask me, you, you, can, you can know that I'm aroused in terms of my feeling state by doing a brain scan. That'll show up. Or you can even look at my neurotransmitter production in the brain, and you can say there's more dopamine being activated right now than a few minutes ago. 
But you don't go up to somebody and say, are you having a dopamine kind of day? <laughs> it's, it's a nonsense question. And so to get at the interior uh, of, of you and me, it requires conversation, it requires dialogue. One way to understand this is that medicine, a medical perspective, is monologic. It's monologue. You don't have to have a conversation. And as soon as you move into the zone of what I said is a therapeutic zone, which is getting into somebody's interior world, it requires dialogue. And so what you're expecting from a skilled helper is that they are skilled in how to dialogue in meaningful ways to get at the root of what's going going on, in this case with addiction. So to examine my private thoughts and behaviors uh, and apply that to addiction, there's going to be a different answer than you get with a physician. They're looking, at, they're looking through different lenses at the same phenomenon. If we drop down to the lower right-hand corner, we talked about this was a courtroom judge, uh, they're not uh, interested in what's going on inside of you, and they're not looking at you the way that medicine would be, looking at your individual biology. They're wanting to know what you've done in the context of what's observable in relationship to the collective. That means us. And so this is laws. Laws don't really care about how you're feeling. You're either abiding by the laws that are corporate or collective, or you're violating them. And so I'm sure that if you gave some thought to this, your answer to the question of what would a judge say about addiction is probably uh, substantially different than what you imagine a doctor or a, a therapist to say about it. Um, if, if a doctor is going to be looking at uh, addiction the way we talked about last week in terms of brain function and chemicals, various systems being involved, and a therapist is going to look at, at addiction as a function of, let's say, psychological trauma and uh, 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 ineffective skills at self-soothing, just for an example. A judge, while ideally respectful of those two perspectives, doesn't have that perspective. That judge, he or she is going to be looking at uh, addiction as, as, I'm just going to be slightly tongue-in-cheek, addiction to a judge is five years. It's five years in prison. That's what, that's what addiction is. And that's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's a partial truth. Um, I'll tell you what I shared today with the group is I said that if there's an, uh, an active addict on a substance that makes them violently aggressive and they're on the streets where my daughter lives and my grandson, you're uh, damn straight that I want that person, I want, to, I want my daughter to be protected from that person. And in comes this lower right-hand perspective, the value of protecting the we or the us. And so looking at our observable behaviors really matters. And that's really what a judge does. It's for, the, for that matter, it's what a police officer does. It's highly important. And if you ask a police officer or a judge about addiction, they're probably going to have a different answer than, than a, a, a physician, a psychiatrist, or a psychologist. So those are the first three. Let's look at the lower, the lower left-hand corner and its definition of addiction. I wish we were all here talking together because... The truth is, is that all of us, uh, with very few exceptions, have loved ones that have struggled with addiction. If you haven't yourself, you have somebody in your life. In fact, I think I mentioned this last time, is that the latest uh, research on this that was done a couple years ago, a nationwide uh, study of, of those that were surveyed, two-thirds of them uh, uh, endorsed that they have somebody who's actively addicted to alcohol or other drugs in their, in their immediate family. Two-thirds of people said that's how frequent, that's, how, that's, the, uh, that's the level of addiction in families. And I think I also mentioned another piece which tied into last week's discussion of shame and stigma is that two-thirds uh, uh, of those that said that they had 
uh, family members that were addicted, direct family members, two-thirds of them said they wouldn't talk to anybody about it outside of the family. That's part of what we're trying to do here at Ask an Addiction Specialist, um, is to create a resource for you if you're a loved one, for you if you're uh, in recovery, and, and if you're a professional in the field, if you're a therapist or a doctor or a judge, to provide a, a, a resource that can be archived that is meant to address that stigma because it's, it's, uh, it's killing us in droves. And as I shared last week, I shared the front cover of National Geographic and mentioned the front cover of Newsweek or Time Magazine. It's all over the news now. The, the prevalence of, of uh, the opiate addiction epidemic and the deaths that are directly related to that. And so uh, this information that we're talking about is not some kind of intellectual head trip. It's actually uh, vital and, and potentially life-saving. So back to the lower left-hand corner. If you're a loved one of, of an addict, how do you define addiction? And as I said, all of us could be sitting here talking about this. I'll share with you some examples that came from today's group. Um, there was a whole range of responses. Some of them were more compassionate, you know, uh, uh, but, but not all of them were. Some of them were quite non-compassionate, and I wanted to have compassion on those uh, loved ones that don't feel compassion anymore. And so it went from uh, your, uh, uh, I look at addiction as a failure of uh, morals, I look at it as a weakness. I look at it as uh, not being able to say no, and why can't somebody say no to drugs? I look at, at it as greed. These are all things that clients shared with me today. On That is on one end of the range. At the other end of the range, there was uh, one individual at the left end of the table who said, uh, addiction is, uh, this was a loved one, as he imagined it, addiction is um, the incapacity to stop something that is killing me and killing everybody else. It's, uh, uh, and that gets closer to uh, an understanding that is less shaming and actually more compassionate. I actually asked the group today, uh, one of them talked about, uh, about the greed, and I said, how many of you, when you're active in your addiction, have the luxury of imagining that you're greedy? How many of you uh, have the capacity to say no and this is not about excusing, but if we don't understand the compulsive nature of craving in addiction, uh, then we're going to be flummoxed. We're, not, we're going to be stuck trying to explain something that doesn't make sense. It's one of the reasons in, in recovery that it's essential that uh, recovering individuals uh, recovering from addiction have resources with one another. This is the value for me of the various programs, the 12-step programs, smart recovery, refuge recovery, other resources to be with people that understand addiction from the inside because I certainly did not understand this. I had oodles of training in psychology, very little training in addiction, and no personal acquaintanceship with it to help me understand, even as I was working with people that were addicted, to understand what it's like from the inside to not be able to stop something that makes no sense. And uh, 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 you can reference last week's presentation to understand a little bit more about craving, for example, and some of the things that don't make sense. In a nutshell, what we talked about is that almost everything that's related to willpower and moral uh, 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 stamina and good decision-making is a frontal cortex phenomenon, referred to as just cortical. And that goes offline with, uh, with uh, drug abuse and drug addiction. So what you're left with is you're left with the subcortex, the uh, reward center of the brain running the show with no breaks. And in a nutshell, that, that's why 
an addict can will to stop smoking, stop drinking, stop uh, 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 gambling. They can will that, and there's not enough uh, leverage, not enough traction with that, because what's guiding the show is full-on acceleration from the reward center, and there's not enough breaks from the frontal cortex. I recommend that you go back to that resource from last week to uh, get a better understanding of that. So let me ask you about your own definition of addiction. <laughs> and just to reflect again on that for just a minute. I guess it depends on your perspective. You know, I, I just sat with a room full of young men, uh, most of them young men, reflecting on their own addiction and, and uh, their early recovery. And you, we had the whole range in the room. There were, there were individuals in the room who feel only self-mortification and self-judgment for their having been addicted. Very understandable, and I can relate to that personally. And if you've been in addiction, you, I'm sure that you can as well. That's really one of the uh, primary stumbling blocks to effective recovery is feeling like that we're somehow broken and can't be fixed. So there was that evidenced in the room all the way across a, 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 to a place that was very similar to the responses about a loved one, an ideal loved one who would understand that there's a problem here that needs to be handled and it needs to be handled from all of the perspectives we shared on the front, on the front page. In other words, addiction is a medical problem and my, my biology in active addiction is completely upside down, which is why it can take months, even sometimes to a year or two, depending on the severity of the addiction, for the brain and the body to right themselves. There is improvement nearly from the beginning in sobriety, but it takes a long time to get back to ground zero in terms of a stable base. And that you can look at uh, as, as a biological or medical phenomenon. I have to say this, is that when I looked in the room, I, I made this comment. It was right towards the end of the, the meeting today. And I said, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I said, chances are that you, 20 men here in the room, including myself, have been subject to statistically significant greater amounts of psychological trauma than is normal. And, that, and I use the word statistical because just in terms of a normal exposure to emotional trauma, including uh, violations of boundaries and abandonment as two examples, and violations of boundaries can come in terms of all kinds of abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all of those count, is that I'm sitting in a group of men that, that to a one, every one of us in that room have encountered that for whatever reasons we've encountered that in our lives. And there's a tremendous correlation between adverse childhood experiences, what I'm calling trauma, and proneness to addiction. And I even said this, I said, there might be one or two of you that are the exceptions to what I just said, and I would grant that, and you, are, you represent the exceptions that prove the rule. And so trauma, which is an interior phenomenon, has got to be addressed. And that is really, as I understand it, that, that's the vocation of therapists. That's what therapists are doing, is getting in to understand that. And so if I'm looking at a definition of, of addiction for myself, I want to understand it medically. I want to understand it in terms of, of psychological trauma and the need for that to be healed. I want to understand it in the way that a judge does, is that there's stuff that I just can't do, you know? I'm going to end up in the slammer. In fact, in that room today, many, if not most of the clients have spent time in prison or in jail for the infractions and they've lost privileges. They can't drive. They can't hold a job. They've committed felonies. They've stolen, etc. 
And that's the reality of the world. And unless that's addressed, unless I change my behavior, I've got a legal problem. It doesn't really matter if I've got trauma. It doesn't matter if my biology is messed up. I'm going to continue to have more and more of my privileges as a human being limited. And so my definition of addiction should include that. And finally, in some ways, I feel like most importantly, my definition of addiction should include the fact that, that what I've done has had horrible consequences. The program calls this wreckage from the past. And I have uh, spoiled my relationships to those that are instrumental to my health and my healing. And that's the ones that love me the most. And so I hope that my definition includes the impact my behavior has had on others. If that were sufficient to stop me from using or drinking, then none of us would have a problem here. Unfortunately, addiction can override that as well. And we discussed that last week too, in terms of the override of normal, expectable attachment uh, needs for connectedness to others, whether it's our parents, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our siblings, our, our husbands, our wives, even our children, all of that can be trumped by addiction. And so I need to have uh, in my definition of addiction to be inclusive of that as well. So I want to move in just the next uh, five minutes or so and then open this to questions from, from you all. If you have any questions or, or contributions, I invite you to send those through the chat function. Is the next slide. Is that any definition of holistic treatment must be inclusive of all five definitions that we've just come up with. Now, the fancy title for that that's used in, in uh, professional treatment of addiction is a bio-psycho-social-cultural approach to addiction. Why don't we just stick with holistic? That's a little bit more understandable. But just to help you with that, the biological is the upper right-hand corner. The psychological is the upper left-hand corner. The sociological is the lower right-hand corner. That's really what we're looking at in terms of group phenomena from the outside. That's what sociologists study. That's also what criminal justice studies. And the lower left-hand corner is the cultural dimension. And in cultural, I'm including not only the larger culture, which really matters, society, but also familial culture. And that's really much of the focus of where we'll be going over the next weeks is looking at family as culture. And it's looking at family from the inside for sure. Let me mention two more resources for you. There's what's referred to as part-whole error. This comes out of Socrates, the Greek philosopher. And in a nutshell, what part-whole error is, it's very understandable, is where I mistake, mistake a part for the whole. The example I gave today with, with uh, the young men I was meeting with is I asked them, do they know the story of the blind men and the elephant? Um, no one did today. Well, usually somebody does. The story, the fable is this, is that there were a number of blind men that were introduced into a room with an elephant and were um, uh, asked to identify an elephant, describe an elephant, and each one of them was um, located at one region of the elephant. So one blind man had his hand on the trunk of an elephant, another on the ear of an elephant, another on the tail of an elephant, another on the hoof of an elephant, and each one of them described an elephant based on what they experienced, what part they were, they were able to hold, and since that was their only reference point, you can imagine the definitions that came from that. The fact is, is each one of them was right. Each one of them was partially right, and their definitions were not sufficient to describe an elephant as a whole. That requires something different. So a part-whole error is where I mistake one of the definitions that we just described here together earlier, I mistake that for the whole. <clears throat> so how does that go? How do misunderstandings arise? I'll give you some examples. 
I grew up in a medical family where I'm the only one in the family that wasn't trained in the medical professions. I mentioned uh, my father last week. He was a physician and then later became a psychiatrist. And uh, I have three uh, family members that are all nurses. And uh, it, if you've studied medicine and nursing as long as my family members have, it's very understandable that you will go, first of all, to the medical or to the upper right corner. And the trick is not to mistake that for the whole. I, on the other hand, have most of my training, six years of graduate school and six years of postdoctoral training in psychology, the upper left-hand corner. And so you know where my uh, vulnerability will be. I'll tend to reduce things down to being nothing but psychological and, and pay less attention to the other uh, three quadrants. If we drop down to the lower right, if I'm a, the example I gave today in the group is if I'm a literate judge, that is literate in terms of respecting the different perspectives, I'll understand what my job is, but I won't mistake my definition of addiction for representing all of addiction. On the other hand, if I'm an illiterate judge, I can be very intelligent in the law and mistakenly reduce addiction down to nothing but a criminal act and miss a lot that's robust and important in the healing of addiction. And finally, uh, the lower left hand, if I'm the loved one of an addic uh, of a, a addict uh, or somebody in recovery, I will have experienced enough frustration to be mighty vulnerable to blaming and uh, pointing fingers, and it's very understandable, but whatever definitions generate out of that frustration, they need to be held in balance with the other perspectives. And so uh, I need to be able to uh, ideally not resort to my part, whatever it is. I'll tell you something is how this goes in the recovery industry is you'll have plenty of infighting and misunderstandings between those groups I just talked about. You'll have, you'll have family therapists who focus on the lower left hand, not understanding the biology of addiction. You'll have individual psychotherapists arguing with the legal uh, profession or judges because they don't understand addiction and vice versa. And so what we're talking about in holistic treatment is uh, embracing all of these perspectives, all of the above. This is the final slide for today, and then I'm going to say a word about uh, where we'll be going next week. Uh, in a summary, what we've been talking about with these four different perspectives, every one of them is valid, each one's partial, each one's necessary, and together they make up a whole that is finally sufficient to describe addiction. For shorthand, you can take this with you. The upper right-hand quadrant is looking at what I do, what are, what are my behaviors. The upper left-hand quadrant looks at why I do what I do. That requires getting inside that. The lower right-hand quadrant looks at what we do. For example, when an addict breaks the law, what we do is not that, and what we do to you if you do that is send you to jail. And if we move to the lower left-hand quadrant, this is looking as a family member, for example, a loved one of an addict. Why we do what we do, and that's looking at addiction in the context of whether it's the larger society or looking at it in the context of a family. And this is not about ever, about abstaining the responsibility, the primary responsibility of the addict to address his or her addiction uh, 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 full on. But it's also looking at the context, and I'll, I'll give you a practical example that you'll be able to relate to. If a family member can find some way in their heart to move, I think it takes therapeutic help to do this, to move past all of the frustration uh, maybe the giving up on the addict, if there can be healing there and that family member can, over time, with a committed uh, individual in recovery, come back, come back to support that individual in recovery, move past the anger and the frustration and the distancing that's understandable, move past that, then you've got a resource there where, where uh, the, the probability of the addict's 
recovery sticking is uh, infinitely more with support. And, uh, uh, and, and that's why we want to look at what, why we do what we do, because the we is, I want to support, I want to be supported if I'm in recovery, and I want to support those I love in recovery, and I'm going to need some help to get there because I've really been burned, I've really been hurt, and I may just be over that. So, so that's a little bit of our understanding of holistic uh, uh, treatment, holistic recovery. I'm going to pause here, just check in with Austin, and then what I'll do is I'll wrap up by talking about where we go next. <clears throat> Any comments, questions for today? Uh, no, it doesn't look like Okay, that. okay. Uh, a thought here, let me uh, uh, let you know that if you have some thoughts uh, reviewing this, many of you will review this after the fact. In fact, I want to reference that you come to the Facebook group, join the group, uh, uh, Ask an Addiction Specialist, and, uh, and you can access now. There's already two of these, including this today, that can be archived. If you have comments or questions, write uh, in the, uh, 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 the responses. You have a chance in the comment box right there, and I know that Austin and Franz will forward that to me. I also am going to give you my uh, 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 website in just a moment. You can write to me directly uh, either through Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or my uh, or my uh, uh, you can write directly on my my website if you have questions or comments because I, I I live for doing this. I'm really invested if you didn't already get the drift of it, really invested in providing information. And so if I can be helpful to you, uh, that's one thing. And secondly, if there are things that you want me to talk more about or something that you disagree with, I value all of that input. So let me point towards what we're going to do next week. Next slide, please, friends. We're going to take what we talked about today in terms of a model for understanding different vantage points on addiction, different lenses, and basically putting our arms around all of them to say that they're all valid. What does that look like when we turn that into the active recovery? And we'll be talking next week about what does holistic self-care look like? I mentioned earlier this phrase from psychology, self-regulation. Uh, there are two things that are key to effective recovery if it's going to be sustained, and one of them is self-regulation, which is what do I need to do? And in the spirit of what we talked about today, that must be understood holistically. And so we'll be revisiting this next week. The second piece is co-regulation, which is in the context of relationships, especially with those that love us the most, what can be done to heal to provide a more solid foundation uh, for ongoing recovery. We'll be coming to that in the, in the ensuing weeks. I'm very invested in looking at the relational dimension of the healing of, of, of addiction as well. Uh, but next week we'll be looking at holistic self-care and specifically, next slide, We'll be looking at the upper left and upper right-hand quadrants, those two corners that we talked about. Basically, the perspective of looking at things from a physical or medical perspective, biological perspective, that's the upper right. And we'll be looking at the upper left in terms of the psychological or the interior, the individual perspective. And the way I understand this, and you can see this in this slide, is that the, be <coughs> the behaviors I need in terms of uh, taking care of myself. Somebody asked last week in the question and answer, what do I need to do to rebuild my uh, dopamine uh, responsiveness? The, the, my, my neurotransmitters are depleted, and they are as a function of extended addiction. What do I need to do? And so there are some practical things, and the response there is all upper right-hand quadrant, uh, talking about trying to get back to a place of regulating our diet, our exercise, our sleep, all of which are founded on sobriety, uh, 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 
uh, abstinence in terms of getting the body to regulate because the reintroduction, as we talked about, of substances create dopamine spikes and you're basically caught in a loop. So it's the single strongest argument for abstinence I know of. I'm not doing it from a religious perspective or even a moral perspective. I'm just being very pragmatic. If I want to regulate my body and brain, I need to get back to a set point. And that includes uh, taking, uh, taking in good, healthful uh, foods, getting as much sleep as I can to rest and repair, and to uh, exercise my physical body because that's a good thing. And we'll, talk, we'll be talking about more about that next week. So that's the upper right-hand quadrant. <coughs> the, the upper left-hand quadrant, we'll be looking at what do I do to manage my personal feelings and my thoughts, my thinking processes, and that'll be what we look at next week. Next slide, specifically, I'm just gonna give this as a teaser. We'll be talking about what psychology has come up uh, to address in the last uh, two decades as multiple intelligences. And we'll be talking about different developmental lines as a way to organize, and I, I intend this to be practical, uh, organize what I need to do if I am an, uh, an individual who's been addicted and is really serious about my recovery, what do I need to do to really uh, sustain that uh, on, on a long-term basis, and it really requires a commitment to behavioral change, and we'll be talking about those changes that tie directly into multiple resources or intelligences that we all have. Many of those lapse in the context of addiction. Uh, some of those were never developed because we just missed that developmental era. But the good thing about the brain is that it's flexible. It's referred to as neuroplasticity. Our brains, thank goodness, can heal themselves. And we'll be talking about all of that in our next session. Final slide. I look forward to seeing you next week. This is my website. You can go here. Uh, uh, drbobweathers.com. It's easy to remember. And there's a ton of material. There'll be links to, to um, all kinds of podcast material. Uh, uh, there, I, I have almost daily blogs that are pertinent to addiction recovery. And just a lot of resources there uh, that, that I want you to access. We're going to be building that out with uh, bibliographies, all kinds of things. And so that coupled with Ask an Addiction Specialist, the Facebook group there, that'll get you started in terms of resources on an ongoing basis. I uh, recommend that you access uh, this information. Please review this uh, 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 a podcast today. Send in your responses to, to Austin and Franz, both of whom I really am grateful to you for producing today. And come back and visit us next Wednesday, same time, same station. This will be a weekly, uh, a weekly session with us. And I look forward to addressing uh, holistic uh, self-care from the inside next week. Thank you very much. Dr. Bob signing off for today. Take care.